from 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. This week we bring you Rails Bank in talks to buy Wirecard UK, making it the biggest bass player in Europe. JP Morgan to possibly launch a UK digital challenger bank by 2021. And under lockdown, UK open banking payments surged over 800%, while in Japan, credit card activity rose so much they're running out of card numbers to print. All this and much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 457 of Fintech Insider. I'm Sarah Kachansky, and today I'm joined by my colleague and my co-host, Jason Bates. How are you doing, Jason? I'm good, although Dark Sky has just sent me a yellow rain warning for the East Midlands. Like, yellow rain? Is, <laughs> should I be worried? Well, as somebody who is currently sitting under a thunderstorm, I can confirm there is certainly a lot of rain, but I couldn't comment on the colour. Um, also, we're British, so we have to start by talking about the weather. That is a requirement. Um... So, as is now normal, we're joined remotely by some awesome guests. Uh, making a welcome return, we have Shafali Roy, COO and CCO at TrueLayer. How are you today, Shafali? Great, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, thank you very much for coming back. And uh, making her FinTech Insider debut from across the Atlantic, we have Rachel Green, Research Analyst for Insider Intelligence. How are you today, Rachel? I'm great. Thank you for having me. So Rachel and I actually used to work together. So this is the second time this has happened in in, in two weeks. Um, so I'm, I'm, I promise you, it's not a, it's not a plan just to bring all my ex colleagues on the show. It, uh, it's just just how it's fallen. All right, um, welcome to the show. Let's get started. So the first story today is that Rails Bank is to buy Wirecard UK. So Wirecard has been called to sell off key assets, including its UK entity, Wirecard Solutions, by German administrators. Prior to the company's collapse this summer, WCS, as it's known, settled card payments for over 70 fintechs in the UK, including Revolut, Pocket, Soldo, Anna Money and Curve. Railsbank has confirmed that it's handed WCS purchase term sheets that have yet to be signed, um, but that the acquisition is set to be finalised in November. If the deal does go through, Railsbank will be on track to become one of the biggest banking as a service providers in Europe. Um, so initial thoughts on this one? Uh, so for us, uh, it was really interesting, actually, because two of the two of the entities that you mentioned there, Anna Money and Revolut, are both customers of ours. And so when it all happened, you know, the pandemonium was quite amazing uh, the day before and the day off, actually, because they had to figure out what they had to do with their customers. Um, Anna Money were fabulous, actually, particularly when we were working with them and, and they were trying to figure out what solution they had for their for their end users, uh, who obviously we work with as well uh, in, a, in an AIS and PIS capacity. But I think more than anything, we've all been reading about this for a while, certainly when the FT investigation started. But the end collapse, it seemed rather rapid. I mean, it seemed almost like over 24 hours. It was an entity that was fine. And then next thing you know, they're absconding from justice and they're, you know, leaving the country and getting onto private planes and all this sort of stuff. So I think I don't think anybody really expected how swift the collapse was. Um, I read a really interesting piece of uh, information the other day, which said that at some point Wirecard was thinking about taking over Deutsche Bank, which when you think of where it is today, uh, you know, that's quite a quite a change from where they are and where they were meant to be. So initial thoughts really were, I think the collapse was rather horrific. I think this is the first quote unquote fintech, I would imagine, that uh, we can say is really succumbed to the winds of normal legacy bank change. But I think some of the clients that we have who are customers of theirs uh, put in place some really cool and very quick 
rapid solution so that their end users were not left bereft. And uh, I don't know, I think I was really shocked at how, how it all imploded. But I think it's just a cautionary tale for all of us, really. Yeah, it's, it's it's fascinating, isn't it? Because we've we've talked about it a few times on this this show before, but we're fairly sure a Netflix series must be in the making, but they can't possibly have written the finale yet. Um, Jason, please, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, go back five years, maybe more, um, and Wirecard plus a card processor that some description was the recipe for launching some kind of uh, account in the UK. So if you were a, you know, you were looking to create a challenger bank or to create a, a neo bank or something in that ilk, and you wanted a, a beachhead in a travel money card or an, a discretionary money account or something like that, Wirecard were, were probably at the top of that list. So um, they're just one of those infrastructure providers or the type of in infrastructure providers you need to launch this kind of thing. And, and they were, they really ran with that across Europe. So it probably makes sense for Rails Bank, who are trying to position themselves in that, you know, banking as a service. They always used to have a, uh, a strap line of, you know, make a bank account with five lines of code. And the fact that they've now got, uh, w, uh, they, they're attempting to buy uh, WCS, uh, rounds out both a, a client list, uh, a funnel, and uh, and builds out capabilities, I think, in order for them to, uh, to, to follow their, their mission. Yeah, no, it's it's a really interesting, uh, really interesting move um, on on Rails Card's part because um, you know talking about perhaps uh, Wirecard's uh, collapse being um, a little bit more sudden than was expected. Though I suppose that's probably not true if you were the FT journalist who broke it in 2017 and has been banging your head against a wall for the last uh, two and a half years. But for Rails Bank, um, they've almost gone the other way. We've seen almost. I mean, again, they've been doing a lot of work in the background, but they've they've had a, a very quick sort of uh, scaling, I suppose, over the last the last few months or so. Um, so what do we think about the fact that do you think that um, it will have any impact? So obviously, uh, Shafali, you mentioned that people like Anna Money and Curve had to put some very clever things in place to sort of pick themselves up and continue trading as a result of this. And, and obviously, that meant that a lot of them did leave uh, Wirecard um, as a provider and, and, and go somewhere else. Um, do you think Rails Bank will be able to, to win these clients back? Do you think it, or, or do you think, you know, with their own reputation by... Um, but by, by, by you know building it back up again, or do you do you think that you know Rails Bank will struggle to attract customers because of the legacy of, of Wirecard systems? Do you know, I think I think if Rails Bank, I don't, I'm not very familiar with their product or, or them particularly, but I think is any any player in the market who is coming in to really salvage uh, an existing existing client book, I think the proof of the pudding is in the product. If Rails Bank really develop a product and develop uh, uh, infrastructure that entities like Curve and Anna Money and Revolut and all those companies require, uh, then they get to keep them. But I think they have to iterate and constantly prove as an infrastructure player that they can actually keep up with what are the what, what the needs of the, the Anna Money's of the world and, and of the intermediaries that they have to support. So I think more than anything, Sarah, it's the real banks I think of the world will have to not not keep not tend them back. I would say, but once they've got them, they need to keep them. And I think maintaining that clientele and maintaining that standard of excellence or the products that they they build, so that they have the entities and they have the companies like Curve and Anna Money as clients, will be a hard task because they're also doing this under enormous distress. I mean, we're not we're not playing around here. You know, this company is collapsing, and there's pressure on everybody really to support them, Rails Bank to keep them 
and a money not to go somewhere else uh, or any any other player for that matter. And it's now basically a land grab, I reckon, because if you have other entities in, in the market like Reels Bank who can provide that infrastructure service, then, well, why should I stay with you? For those who don't know, um, Rails Bank is really a bank as a service provider. They prototype, build, scale um, for, for financial use cases. So whether it's issuing IBANs or debit cards or bank transfer or collecting money uh, cards, um, spend money cards, converting money. And so actually with WCS being a prepaid card issuer, it just fits into that suite of services where if you wanted to come along you know, and build a Revolut clone, then you could go to Rails Bank and say, great, I want an IBAN and a card and a this, that and the other, and away you go. So, um, I mean, I know, uh, well, at 11FS, we've recently uh, wrote a paper on bank as a service and how that's growing. And, and Rails Bank's a good example of that. And um, just just one final thing, because um, Rails uh, Bank CEO Nigel uh, Vernon um, commented on the um, on perhaps the need for for greater regulation around companies like Wirecard, or maybe new rules or guidance for companies, as you say, that maybe want to use a banking as a service provider. Um, you know, it's a more protection in place because, as we said, the fallout from this was huge, particularly in the UK, but but across Europe as well. Um, does anybody have any thoughts on whether new rules are appropriate, whether we perhaps need them? I mean, uh, Jason, I know you've worked in this space, but um, but you know, do do we think that's coming? I, I think there's something very interesting about the platformification of banking. You know, it used to be that you had a monolithic provider with the license and the customer relationship. And now we've got a number of layers of players who all rely on each other. Whose fault is it if AWS falls down or if um, a prepaid card provider you know, collapses or if the if there's some kind of fraud or error at a KYC firm? It starts to get quite icky when you say, well, um, you know, some of these uh, infrastructure firms deep in the stack are providing services for wide varieties of fintech and big bank clients. And so where's fault and liability and who does the regulator go and kick? It's the person with the license, but then how does that all work? You know, and I think so. So I think the um, the ecosystem of providers that are coming together to deliver customer solutions are going to need looking at from a, a risk perspective um, in a slightly different way to, to traditional monoliths. Yes, that makes sense. The regulation has got to keep up with the way so technology is moved, as always, and regulators now need to keep up with the technology and the way things are being done. But I suppose that's that's always the way. Um, Shafali, did you have any concluding thoughts on that one? Uh, no, just to add on the regulation path, I mean, I think regulators only can work with what they have. And so, you know, as you mentioned, Sarah, this investigation started in 2017. So one would have hoped that someone was following it at the FCA as well. Uh, I think safeguarding rules at the moment are intensely complex anyway. I, I kind of wonder what, what else they're going to add to it if they do have to add to it. Because as it is, I mean, we, we, we go through that regulation as well. But um, having extra safeguarding more rules on on e-money, sort of e-money type products, wallets, etc. Uh, I think it would be inevitable, but I kind of wonder what possibly they could add now that they all don't already have. 
yes, it will be interesting to see if it's an addition or something different, perhaps a third type of licensing regime coming in. But um, I think we'll have to wait and see. And I think it's not just the FCA who's looking at this. I'm fairly sure BaFin and Germany, which is looking a little red faced right now, may be having some thoughts, doing some thinking as well. Um, right. I'm going to move us on to our next story today, which is that JP Morgan is to challenge UK banks with a digital launch in early 2021. So Chase is targeting the launch of its online UK challenger bank, uh, as I said, in Q1 2021. Um, the idea is apparently that it will enable it to take advantage of increased use of digital services that we've seen throughout the pandemic. Um, and that's not just the UK, obviously that's global. The project is expected to be chaired by Clive Adamson, who is a former executive at aforementioned uh, FCA, the UK regulator. And JP Morgan has signed up suppliers, including AWS, also aforementioned, um, and 10x Future Technologies to provide it with cloud and digital banking infrastructure. Uh, JP Morgan's consumer banking business operates predominantly in the US at the moment, and its expansion to the UK is likely to involve offering savings, current accounts, uh, typical consumer banking services, basically. Um, When the new bank, or if the new bank is launched, it would mean the two biggest names on Wall Street now operate consumer banks in the UK. Of course, we have uh, my favourite bank here already. That's Goldman Sachs's Marcus. Um, Rachel, I know you wrote about this uh, for, for the Business Insider. So um, would you like to, to give us the, the first take on it? Sure. So as of now, I have pretty mixed feelings about this news. I'm not completely sold on it. Um, if it does launch in Q1 2021, it's coming at a really weird time. I think Um, You know, Chase wanted to launch this to capitalize on, like you said, on the shift to digital that's been happening as a result of the pandemic. And that's definitely a valid thought. Um, But they're going to be launching this against a really challenging backdrop of low interest rate environment with a ton of existing competition in the challenger bank space. Um, As you know, the UK is home to some of the most mature challenger banks, neobanks, Starling, Monzo, Revolut, which all have millions of users on their own. And then on top of that, we just saw Chase shutter their US digital only bank thin within a year of launching it. So um, I think it's going to be interesting to see how they improve their strategy when they go for this product and how they adapt it to fit the UK market. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting because um, I, I, don't, I don't mean to brag about this yet again, but I predicted Finn's demise six months before it happened. Um, so as somebody who you, you, you're kind of mostly focused in the US and you're based in the US, what, what do you think was the reason behind uh, Finn's demise? Maybe there's more than one, but what do you think was the predominant reason behind that? Yeah, so there's definitely a number of reasons. I think the main one is that it didn't, Chase didn't differentiate Finn enough from its flagship Chase mobile banking app. Um, it was meant to be geared towards millennials, but it didn't really do anything that was, you know, so different that people couldn't get within the Chase app itself. And I think ultimately it didn't differentiate itself from neobanks in the US, um, namely with competitive interest rates. It didn't have a high yield savings account. Um, so I think for those few reasons, just it did not work out. Yeah, no, I totally see your point about differentiation. It's something that that we talk about here in the UK as well. We do still have new players coming to market over here, and and, and differentiation is um, is, is is something that, that a lot of them have, have kind of struggled with, I guess. Um, uh, Jason, obviously, you probably have many thoughts on the UK digital banking market. What do you think about uh, another challenger and and this particular uh, particular bank uh, launching a, a, a challenger brand here? Well, I don't know this in as detailed a way as uh, as Rachel does. Um, but it, it does seem 
it does seem an interesting territory to pick the UK, given that it does have the most mature uh, digital challenger market. So there are lots of players already here. Um, obviously, Goldman Sachs has done well with Marcus, predominantly off a great interest rate that was that was industry beating, and therefore, you know, there's an interesting question as to what kind of bank is this going to be? Because if they aim for a Monzo Starling Revolut style thing, like. They're going to have to spend a lot of money on advertising to to push this through. I think you're going to be buying customers, uh, and maybe that's part of the you know the um, the plan. Um, otherwise, you're going against Goldman Sachs around interest in order to pull in deposits, or you're aiming at lending. And you know you probably don't want to be in mortgages at the moment. You probably don't want to be in lending very much at the moment. So it's one thing to say that they're launching a new bank, but what is the business model? Are they a lender? Are they trying to get deposits? Are they trying to you know to launch some quasi credit card like what's the angle and i think until we see really what the proposition is it's it's quite difficult to evaluate how well it's going to perform i agree i, th- I think the interesting thing as well is that if they couldn't make it work in the us where arguably jp morgan is a bigger consumer facing brand and there are there are fewer challenges established challenges let's say it that way i know that that's changing now but if you think about the big names over there there are fewer of them how do they think they're going to make this work in the uk it's it's an interesting move. Um, Shafali, did you have any thoughts on this one? Well, I think the more the merrier, really. I'm a Marcus customer and I love Marcus. And so I, I love the, the product. And I mean, I, I should also say that I was an ex-Goldman Sachs employee, but that's also the reason why I love Marcus. I think it's just a good product. Although the other day I got an email from them to say my interest rate is lowering. So I wasn't too thrilled about that one. But I think, you know, I'm really right. Maybe it's the point that, you know, they have the book. They have the book to be able to offer this product. And also with all the bank segregation rules and all that sort of stuff where deposit institutions are, are not the operating bank and all that sort of stuff in the leverage maybe Europe is a much more sort of interesting market for them and I think I would say and I would wager that I think the European market is much more used to the Europe the, the digitized neobank model than the Americans maybe and so maybe that's another reason perhaps why they've thought about launching it in Europe um concurrently or before they tried in, in the states um, and I think also to say that almost every neobank and I must be I might be wrong on this so please correct me but I think almost every neobank on the high street that we have which I think is a pun but nonetheless um, whether it's the Monzo or the Starling or the Revolut as far as I'm aware they don't have a deposit uh, product uh, or uh, an interest bearing deposit product and so having something like Marcus or whatever JP Morgan's product is going to be I think would be fabulous and just seeing what what is out there for the for the consumer and to give us choice so I'm I'm all for it yeah I think it's interesting I think Starling does deposits I think it does a very low interest rate on all deposits and Monzo as far as I understand it have an um, interest their most recent premium account is interest bearing but ah. I think other than that it's all so you have to pay for the account to get yeah, the interest pay, which is correct calculation which is, which is then um, a now a now and void uh, <laughs> net, net gain, really, to the consumer. So this is, I think, one of the unique things. And, you know, J.P. Morgan and Goldman's have, have the, the gravitas to do it. So as a consumer, I, I kind of like the choice. Yeah, no, it's, more choices is better for everybody, I think. Um, and Rachel, to go back to the, to the U.S. market, um, what... What do you think could succeed in the U.S. market? So obviously, uh, Chime has done has done pretty well. Um, but what do you what do you think is the key to Chime's success? And do you think that there's room for anybody else to really come in and challenge? I'm, I'm talking about Chime because the one I know best. I know it's got a lot of customers. I know Ally Bank has quite a few as well, but that's an older kind of model. Um, you know, is there anybody I've missed? What is the key to success? And is there room for anybody else? 
Yeah, so Chime is definitely the front runner um, among the U.S. neobanks right now. Um, Varo Money just got approval, like the first U.S. neobank to get approval for its own banking license, um, but it has um, fewer users and accounts than Chime. So um, I think that Chime's success has a lot to do with its ability to speak to its um, target audience, which I think was a downfall of Finn, its inability to do so. Um, I think trying to get younger consumers who ne- don't necessarily want credit cards, but are more interested in personal finance management tools, money management, um, help them build savings, things like that um, are really valuable. And having that in a bank account and not just in a third party app um, to be able to track your spending and set goals and all of that um, basically centered around financial health, having that in your bank account, um, I think is really attractive. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think your point about credit cards is a really interesting one because it picks up on what Jason said earlier. The one thing that we do not have here in the UK, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, anybody, um, is a challenger bank offering a good credit card product or credit product full stop. A number of them are doing lending for small businesses. We have quite a few lending products. But um, but I would think that, you know, sorry, Jason. No, no, no I was going to say um, that there's a reasonably good reason for that, which is uh, you know, for for a fair few years, interchange fees, like the, the money that banks make from credit cards uh, on each transaction, has been limited to. I think it's uh, you need to correct me here, but it's something like twenty basis points for a debit card, thirty for a for a credit card. Where in the US, um, you know, there isn't the, there isn't that um, limit, and therefore uh, a lot of the big banks have made crazy amounts of money off of uh, credit cards. And it's an extremely aggressive market where there are lots of rewards. And in the end, the, the merchants are kind of paying end consumers. Uh, and it's a really weird model, which is why the, the EU have, you know, have put a cap in there. Um, so, so, so I think that, that uh, you know, credit cards in the US make a lot of sense, where in the, in the UK and in Europe, um, the capping on interchange um, you know, makes it less, uh, less attractive. Yes, that's true. And I think, um, again, Rachel, you know this market better than I do, but a lot of the the appeal of credit cards in the US is the rewards, right? The cash back, the points. Yeah, exactly. It's so competitive um, with all different banks coming out with pretty much different versions of the same same thing, travel cards, points, rewards. Um, and that's definitely the biggest, I think, draw to credit cards. But I do think that um, there have been studies about millennials, Gen Z, um, consumers who are really debt averse and don't want to take on credit cards. And so I think that goes back to um, the interest in neobanks. Well, it's that thing. I mean, we've spoken about it on, on this uh, podcast a few times. Um, you know, credit cards are a bizarre product that actually in a world of increasing transparency in the digital world actually lead to more opacity about finances because you get to that point where you spend on your credit card and then realize 30 or 40 days later that you've overspent and suddenly you're paying interest on this revolving credit. So it's this, um, it's a conflicting model where actually it's not in the consumer's best interests or for a fair proportion of consumers, it's not in their best interest. For those who can handle the credit and have a lot of money, then they get the rewards. For those that can't, they end up in this spiral of debt. Uh, so I, you know, I, I never think that credit cards are a, a great consumer product, but that because of the way that they, you know, they prey on the poor in some ways. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think that um, I know Chime, going back to Chime, they recently launched like a credit building 
card that I believe was a debit card. I could be wrong, but I think the point of it was for people with um, thinner credit files that want to build up their uh, credit history. They don't have to do it by, you know, racking up Mm -hmm. their spending on credit cards and they could just use this debit card. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's a huge problem. I mean, in this country, um, I got a credit card as the minute I could because I was told by my, my parents that, that you need a good credit, you need a credit card to get a good credit score and you need a good credit score to be an adult. Um, and obviously, you know, these these things have changed over time. But absolutely, I agree with you. Like Finding new ways to build people's credit so that they can have access to other financial products is hugely important. Shafali, do you have a do you have a? I was going to point? say, I was going to say quickly, <laughs> anecdotally, that's why open banking is really good because you can get credit scores in a different way through open banking. Brilliant. And at that point, I'm going to take us to a quick break, but we'll be back shortly. In fact, to talk a little bit more about open banking. Banking as a service is deconstructing the banking stack. It's enabling brands to embed finance more easily and to tailor financial products to specific customer needs. This is presenting new opportunities for specialized providers and offers banks extra revenue streams. Uh, You can download a report that we've written, no BS view of what banking as a service is and what it means for the industry. Head to bit.ly forward slash banking as a service. That's all lowercase. So bit.ly forward slash banking as a service. Fintech Insider listeners, we need you. If you listen to the show, whether this is your first episode or your 450th episode, or you dip in and out, we'd love it if you could take a few minutes to give us your feedback and suggestions to help shape the future of the show. We want to know what you like, what you don't like, where we can improve, uh, because we make this podcast for you, our listeners, and we want to make it even better. To help us out, please take a moment to visit bit.ly forward slash fintech insider survey. It shouldn't take more than five minutes to complete, but it would mean so much to us. That's bit.ly forward slash fintech insider survey. Thank you so much. And on with the show. Under lockdown, open banking payments surged over 800%. So the number of transactions conducted using payment initiation APIs in the UK saw a more than 800% increase during lockdown, according to financial API provider TrueLayer. Uh, Payment initiation, or PI, is a form of online payment enabled under PSD2 here in Europe and allows customers to make payments directly from their bank accounts. Uh, Payments from traditional bank accounts accounted for 88% of that growth, with challenger banks accounting for the remaining 12%. TrueLayer puts this trend down to an increasing broader acceptance of PI beyond the more technically progressive neobanks. Shafali, I feel like you might be the the person I should come to first on this. Maybe, Sarah, maybe, (laughs) just coincidentally, I might be the right person. Uh, this is really exciting. Thanks, thanks so much for letting us talk about this. Uh, it's really, really exciting. I, I think, uh, firstly, we must say that you know, COVID is just so rubbish. I mean, obviously, that's a technical term of how bad actually the situation is. But I think we, when we all went into lockdown in March, certainly all of Trulia went down into lockdown in March, and we started working from home. Um, we've worked as hard as we've worked ever, I think. But also, I think what's changed is how we buy things online, how we engage with commerce online, um, and how we are consuming products and services and so when we when we did our analysis uh, at all in august and we saw this over 800 percent increase in payments uh, it's astonishing because I, I think it just shows such a huge trend towards really a number one doing things in a different way and consuming and buying products and services in a different way secondly i think the, the idea of you know necessity being the mother of invention right you can't go out to a store to buy your groceries or to i don't know pay your bills or send something and so what's the alternative way which is doing it on the internet um 
the most interesting thing about that, of course, is hopefully your Wi-Fi works because that's something nobody else can help with. But you just want to make sure that Wi-Fi at home is really good and so you can produce and, and consume these products and services. And so for us, one of the really lovely things has been uh, we launched our payment product uh, last year. We were one of the first to launch our payment product last year, which is a payment initiation product. And as far as we are aware, and I'm also most happy to be corrected on this, but as far as we're aware, oh, the open banking traffic that is generated across the rails, over half of it is true layers, and we're the ones who facilitate it, and we're the intermediaries who facilitate that. So the trend of then having payment initiation and that product um, really taking off after after March uh, is is fantastic, but also I think it just shows a growing trend towards how we as consumers want to engage in commerce on the internet. Yes, I mean, this is a twofold thing here, isn't there? There's the fact that more um, providers are now enabling payment initiation uh, services. For, so for those who aren't aware, basically, you go to an app, any app, for example, I'm going to say ASOS, but I don't know if ASOS does it, but it's a big name. You have it across the world. Let's go with ASOS. And when you look at the options for how you pay, you have card, your credit card, you have debit card, you have buy now, pay later, or you have a service powered by open banking. And they have different brands. Um, but basically what that means is that you, you click on that option. It takes you to your online banking provider. Um, if you're on a phone, you just log in with your fingerprint. If you're online, you log in as you would normally. Um, you confirm that you want the payment to happen that way. You just It, it, it should be, it should be, and, and Shafali will back me up here, a really smooth journey. Obviously, it is possible to mess it up, <laughs> but it should be a really smooth journey. Um, and the idea of it or the benefit of it is, and they've had this method of payment quite a long time in Europe, is it cuts out the card provider. Um, and that can be beneficial for the merchants who are paying, you know, lower lower fees. They're not paying fees to those merchants anymore. Um, and to the consumers, perhaps because you're taking out that extra step. So as I said, the journey should be smoother. But also, um, there's less chance of maybe card numbers disappearing into a black hole or fraudulent transactions off the back of it. So that's the idea of it. Um, and so we've got more people doing that, offering it. We've also got more consumers choosing to use it, which is great because one of the big problems that people were concerned about with this was whether consumers would trust this method of payment. Now, Rachel, I'm going to come to you. And I know this isn't a common method of payment in the US. Do you think that people in the US would go for this? Or do you think they're too wedded for, to their credit cards? So if, it, if like JP Morgan started offering it, or Goldman started offering it, do you think people would go for it? Um, so meaning that when you're checking out online, I could directly click on something that's affiliated with Chase, and that is how I'm paying? Yeah, the money goes straight from your Chase account to ASOS. Like you don't need a credit card number. They don't save a credit card number. The money just, you log into your online banking, like however you do usually, whether that's with a fingerprint or face ID, whatever, to confirm the transaction and it goes through. Yeah, I think in the US people are, um, I used to cover payments before banking. And I think that from what I remember, just the trends in the US are that people are more stubborn when it comes to adopting new payment methods, um, perhaps than in the UK. That might be a really general <laughs> statement. Um but I know that, for example, with mobile wallets, it's not as common here and contactless payments. So I think that um, I don't know that people would be sold on it uh, as it being different enough from just like using their debit card, um, especially when there's the autofill option. I think that people would really need to be explained what it is really well to understand the difference and why it's a benefit to use that. Yeah, I think I think to, to Rachel's point, I think that like it's 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 a similar thing, but you put a brand on it, and then people get used to the brand, right? So I think it would be a case of 
And I think one of the things that we've talked about in this country was about consumer adoption. You know, had, had COVID not pitched up and changed everybody's everybody's perspective on the world, life, everything else, let alone payments, um, people might have been a bit more skeptical. But one of the things that we had talked about was the fact that because the merchants are saving money because they're not paying those the fees to the credit card providers, maybe they could incentivize customers to use this method of payment with a percentage of that fee. So do you, I don't know, what about it's, it's, the Americans are so obsessed with like getting cash back, right? Like maybe if you were paid to use it, you might use it, Rachel, or are you still unconvinced? No, I think anything with a discount, anything like that tied to it, I think that's the way to go. <laughs> Particularly if it's ASOS, right? So <laughs> Shafali, sorry, did you want to come back in on that? Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, I think that's one of the ways that there's been consumer adoption conversion of using that open banking rail as a real and a, a legitimate layer and a, a rail of payment. Because when you're saving, you're not paying interchange plus, 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 or you're not, you know, the client or the consumers are paying credit card fees either. There's safety when it comes to fraud. Uh, if there's, God forbid, anything that goes wrong in the transaction, it's a bank to bank liability. It's not the merchant or the intermediary's liability. And all of those checkpoints and checks and balances have meant that the UK and the European consumer is adopting this method of payment. Um, and it's been really, really, really fantastic. I mean, I kind of love it because when I have to think about topping up my account for some of the people who use this sort of product, it's just so effortless because it's done very quick. It's instantaneous. Your settlement is T plus five minutes, not T plus three days. Um, and that sort of consumer adoption has happened because the user experience, and Sarah, you mentioned this, is is really clean and it's smooth and it's quick. Um, and one of the things, and Rachel, maybe this is something why perhaps in America it might take a bit longer, but we spent a lot of time educating the customer and educating the consumer. There was a lot of effort done across the industry between the regulator, between people like us, between applications and banks to say to the to the consumer, this is really a new alternative method of payment. It's your local method of payment and you should use it because it's safer, it's faster um, and it saves you time. And then couple that with the incentivization of merchants to say, use this because it actually saves you money and it saves me the merchant money has been the conversion of been really high. So I think that's another reason why we've just seen this massive 800 plus percent growth in, in our usage uh, because of all these little things that have worked quite seamlessly and quite well in the last five, six months. Yeah. I mean, Jason, do you want to have the last word on this? Well, I guess the story made me want to know more. Because, you know, percentages hide all kinds of sins. Uh, if only 100 transactions were happening, then 800% growth isn't that much. And when you, and and I guess my intuition is still that compared to MasterCard and Visa, American Express, open banking is a tiny, tiny fraction of the number of payments in, that are actually happening in the world. So I get, you know, especially from Trulay's perspective, it's good to push that there's increasing adoption. But actually, we're talking about 800% growth of, of a relatively small number mm. in the grand scheme of payment things. Uh, so I'd love to hear, hear more about that. And also, secondly, um, uh, I wanted to know, like, what were the primary use cases? Like, where really were we seeing the growth? Is this a retailer thing? Or was there a particular provider or one of your clients that, that was actually really, you know, slamming it and growing quickly? And I, yeah, I, it just left me wanting to know more about the numbers, which I'm sure, you know, mm. uh, you can't provide, and, the, um, uh, and whereabouts it was really growing. Well, Shafali, where can people go to find out that information? Is there, have you got more detailed data somewhere or is this perhaps part two of the research? 
It's, it's part two of the research. So we are going to publish a much more holistic and a wider range of open banking uh, results and, and use of our products. I think we're doing it next quarter, if I'm not mistaken, actually, uh, because what we wanted to do is, and Jason, you're quite right, it's, it's not just a shorter period of time, it's also just a shorter window of people potentially using it. So we wanted to make sure that there was robust data to back this up and take more of maybe a two-year, six-monthly, not two-year, a two-quarter, six-monthly period of time to do trend analysis as opposed to just give the, the snapshot from March. Um, and also to answer your question about the use cases, it was mainly other fintechs topping up accounts. So we have quite a few clients who um, are in the fintech space. So it's either you're topping up your bank account or topping up your existing new bank account or topping up your ISA or topping up your fund management account. And it was very much in that space. We had one or two uh, customers in the iGaming and retail space who were using it to top up um, accounts for wallets and all that sort of stuff. So it was mostly, I would say, 60, 40 more fintechs than it was non-fintechs using it. But I think uh, to, to your answer, you, Sarah, your question and, and James's question, uh, very much looking at uh, Jason's question, I mean, very much saying what is another quarter's worth of data that we can have, which gives you a much more robust and uh, a much more detailed view of usage, location, banks and um, time, time horizon. All right. Well, we, we look forward to having you back on to comment on that when part two goes live. Um, but I'm going to move us on, but stay with payments. Um, so I did not write this, but this is what it says in front of me. Layby goes floating on the Australian stock exchange. Um, the company will float for around £115 million from the 7th of September on the Australian Stock Exchange, um, a slightly delayed timeline, but original plans were set back by, you know, the pandemic. Um since 2017, Layby has accumulated 1.6 million users with half of those in the UK and the rest from New Zealand and Australia. At the end of July, Layby secured an $80 million debt facility from Victory Park Capital, which uh, it used to bolster its UK offering. Um, and in the same week, Layby's major Australian rival, Afterpay, had shelled out 50 million euro to acquire, I'm going to say this wrong, but I think it's Pagantis and PMT technology to help it expand across Europe. So we have uh, two things here. We have the battle of the BNPLs heating up across the globe. Um, really interesting to me is that two of the biggest players in this space are from down under. Uh, you know, the, the Aussies and the Kiwis don't have that many big fintechs. When they do, by God, they go big. Zero is another one you might want to look at from, from New Zealand. Um, so uh, a couple of interesting things there. One, you know, the market down there is obviously uh, successful. Sorry, it's, it's obviously conducive to growing this sort of business. And, and B, you know, I suspect perhaps there's not necessarily room for all these players to compete globally. If you look at Klarna's got Europe quite well sewn up. Uh, you know, uh, Afterpay has got the whole of Australia and New Zealand uh, sewn up. Labor's got a bit of business down there as well. Um, uh, Jason, do you want to go go first on this one? Yeah, I guess there's two angles to this. One is the, you know, the growth of the um, buy now, pay later instalment lending, um, which again has some societal issues around people um, getting in over their head with with things that seem a lot cheaper than they are. Oh, just a few more dollars, a few more pounds a week. Sure, I'll buy that. So you know, suddenly when you've got twenty of these uh, loans for for various things that you've uh, you've bought, it starts to add up. And one of the things that I think we lack in financial services is, is really the ability for customers to see what they've committed to in one space. Uh, you know, everyone gets paid a salary, but how much of that is gone, you know, before you start paying it? And I think, you know, the buy now, pay later instalment lending thing um, 
can be problematic uh, uh, as a way of providing credit to uh, to consumers. So I think there's there's something interesting about the growth of that industry, and then I think there's something interesting about the um, about a, a startup essentially being listed on a stock exchange for a relatively low amount of money that you might expect a what a good Series C maybe a Series D um, to to fund. I saw today as well that the New York Stock Exchange is going to allow direct listing there. And I do wonder if there's a move to, from a, away from, uh, you know, venture capital uh, mm-hmm. and into private equity and, and larger sort of stock exchange institutional investing. That means we're going to see more people, um, especially in the kind of current financial climate, go for direct listings and go for listings on the AIM or the stock exchange rather than trying to get massive checks and stay private for longer. Because that, that's been the trend so far that actually companies have got absolutely massive without being public. So I think there's two, two angles to, to the story which both interest me. Yeah, no, to your point, your second point, um, so uh, anybody listens to the show regularly will know that I follow Australia very closely. Um, but an interesting quirk of the market there is that uh, companies do list much, much smaller and much, much earlier. And that my understanding of it is that there are two reasons for that. One is that VC money is harder to come by down there. There is just less of it. Um, and second of all, the way the stock market works in Australia, and I understand um, similarly in Canada, is that because both of those nations uh, built a lot of their early money on shipping and or mining, you need a lot of money up front to start a mining company. So there is a tradition of companies going to the stock exchange and listing very, very early, um, rather than what we might have had uh, in Europe and perhaps the US is where you you raise a lot of money first, build a business, and then you list. Um, So the Australian stock exchange and and the history of the market is just fascinating, but probably a bit too much detail for today. Um, Rachel, you were nodding along there. So what do you, I think, particularly in relation to the buy now, pay later trend, I mean, obviously, you've you've, you've covered payments. Um, What are your your thoughts on this trend? How how well has it taken off in the US? Um, who, Who are the big players there? Um, do you use it? Yeah. So um, actually, my last report that I wrote before transitioning to banking coverage um, was about this space, and it was just stacking up the different players. So I don't know. I haven't really been tracking it for the last year, but I will say just from shopping online and, and seeing what's going on here, it's definitely exploding in the US. I've used it. Um, and I would say like the big players that I see on different retail websites commonly are Afterpay and Klarna. Um, and I have used Afterpay, although just to kind of see what it was about. Um, I agree though about the risks associated with using these things. I mean, I think, um, it could be a good alternative if it's, uh, no interest or, you know, better alternative than a credit card. But I think ultimately if people are getting in the habit of using these, there's dangers associated with spending money you don't have. Um, so I don't think it's a good, like regular payment method to use. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because in the in the UK, Klarna in particular was responding to so the the FCA, as everybody knows over here, is very consumer focused and very keen on protecting consumers, which is something that I think perhaps you're missing in the US when it comes to to regulators. Um, and they had published a paper, not accusing Klarna specifically of anything, but talking about the potential dangers associated with this payment mechanism. And Klarna came back and said, and I can't remember exactly what the percentage was, but basically most of their customers never actually pay any interest um, because it's the ins- it's the installment payment system where you agree up front so long as you pay that amount each month then um, you are you you don't you end up you don't pay interest because you 
uh, agreed to an agreement or a contract rather. But um, I guess to Jason's point, the problem is if you just buy this and just buy this and just buy this and just buy this and you agree to it all on installment and then, you know, by the end of the month, suddenly £2,000 or $2,000 goes out of your account, <laughs> um, that's a bit different. Yeah, I think it's good for, you know, one large purchase if you need to do it on, you know, you're buying a piece of furniture or something like that. But I think regularly it could get kind of dangerous. Um, Chifali, final word. Gonna, uh, thanks, Sarah. I was just going to say, um, I, I've i never used one of these uh, facilities at all. I've never, I mean, I've, I love the Klarna ads and everything, but I've never used it because I always kind of wonder to precisely the point you made earlier, sometimes you can just go, you know, click happy when you're buying products and services because they typically are on, you know, e-commerce websites where they offer this functionality. And um, it's so easy to just go, click happy and can go, oh, I bought 10 dresses when I actually didn't come for any. And now, oh gosh, I've got now $800 million worth of, you know, payment that I have to make to this entity. So I, I'm always kind of wary of it because I think it's, a, it, I think it's, it's credit and interest in disguise. Um, and I, I kind of also wonder about the consumer angle and the consumer rights angle of how we educate people about this, because it's so lovely to say, okay, you could buy this lovely, you know, dress right now and pay for it later. And then when does that happen? And then I'm going to get a bill in the mail which says, pay this money and oops, I forgot about it. And so I always kind of worry and I, I would classify myself as a somewhat of a savvy, a savvy financial person. But I always worry about these things like this because I always think there's some sort of hook at the end where um, as a consumer, I either miss something and I'm going to court unaware and that's just going to then ripple into how much I pay or, 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 or I owe at the end of the month or the quarter or whatever. And on, on the clan, I think, that being said, uh, they are a super interesting and super fabulous company. But I read today, I think, that they had a quarterly 60 or 50 million loss this quarter. So you kind of also look at the validity of this business model as well and say, well, how does one uh, you know, go and drive to profit and revenue when you have this sort of model? Yeah, it's going to be an interesting one to watch for for, for all those reasons. Um, I think, you know, to Rachel's point, these models were traditionally used to buy a fridge or a car. Um, buying eight dresses on ASOS is probably not what they originally intended for. Um, all right, I'm going to move us on. We're going to go. We're going to go back to Challenger Bank. We're going to mix things up a bit here. Um, this is that Zopa has taken its first steps in digital banking with the launch of its fixed term savings accounts. So uh, the new accounts have rates um, of up to 1.3%. Um, they're fixed term accounts between one and five years. Um, there is a minimum deposit of £1,000. Uh, savers can monitor their balance and interest in the Zopa app once the money is deposited. Um, the savings account is the first product available from Zopa's new bank, um, which is part of a long-term strategy to pivot away from its peer-to-peer -peer lending origins um, to providing a wider range of financial services. Um, it does have its own banking license. It took it a while to get there, but it does have one now. Um, Zopa will be lending through its own balance sheet uh, using savers deposits, which is what that license enables it to do. Um, the idea being uh, that it will um, ultimately deliver, you know, more revenue for the firm, which which does make sense all in all as a, as a general theory. Um, initial thoughts on this one so it's another new bank we've kind of already covered this a little bit because it's another new bank coming to market with a high in inverted commas interest rate i remember the days when they were six percent um a high interest rate uh what do we think of zopa's chances jason go straight in there well i don't think it's that they're a new challenger bank i think they're converting their business model you know essentially they've always been lending uh they've just been a peer-to-peer -peer lender i mean zopa invented peer-to-peer -peer lending um 
And peer-to-peer lending worked when the spread between interest rates of what you could get in your deposits and the interest rates that people were being charged was so big that actually you could directly connect depositors and lenders and you do, you know, you did really well. Um, those spreads have, have changed over time. And I, as far as I'm aware, and you probably know better than I do, Sarah, like all, all of the peer-to-peer lenders have struggled and, you know, have, if not collapsed, then are, are, are in trouble. So it becomes an interesting question, like what is OPA good at? Well, if they're good at, at assessing lending, then they need a deposit base or they need money in order to lend out. And hey, like that is the banking business model, like maturity transformation. You give me some deposits, I'll give you some interest. You want to borrow it, I'll lend it to you for a longer period of time. Like that's that's banking. So uh, so I think they've uh, they've smartly seen the direction of travel for where the industry is going and for problems that peer-to-peer lending's you know going to have, and said, well, look, there's an established good model. They've got their banking license, so now they can actually get into this savings and loan, very traditional space in the digital world, with uh, with systems and people that have been in this for a while. And I think it's a smart move. Yeah, no, I completely agree. When they first announced they were going for the license, that was my first thought was, well, if you're going to be lending money, you might as well lend your own money and cut cut out the middle person, as it were. And particularly at the moment, it's interesting, you know, um, I imagine, I don't haven't seen any data yet, but I do imagine that consumer uh, loan defaults are likely to increase, um, given that we have a recession here in the UK. I think there's one in the US, but I don't know if it's been announced yet, Rachel. I've, I've not been keeping a close eye on the US uh, economic situation. But anyway, Consumers all around the world not doing great, likely to see increase in default. So for Zopa to um, diversify its model, it does make a lot of sense. Um, Shafali, you wanted to comment on that. Yes, thank you. Very quickly. Uh, so Zupa is actually one of our customers and they, they use our data and, and payments products uh, to look at loans and, and to look at evaluating loan applicants. And so uh, the savings and loan model is so traditional. But as I cheekily said at the beginning of this uh, podcast, uh, using the open banking infrastructure and looking at data to kind of assess credit worthiness of an individual, uh, that's one of the use cases that Zupa uses our product for, actually. But I think it's a really smart move because why lend what you don't have? And so now to try and pivot and have a really good, healthy balance sheet, but also think about uh, an innovative financial model for your business is a really good one. And banking perhaps is not the traditional first step that they're going to go into. But if they've been a lender, then just to add to that and say, well, now that you've been taking deposits and let's start doing that and, and, and do it off our books, seems like a really smart move. And I mean, it's a huge congratulations to them as well. They've taken such a long time to get here. It's not without its trials and angst. So I think good on them. And let's see, let's see what they could. Also having them in the market as another alternative option is a really nice thing. Yes, I think Jason once said, getting the banking license is the easy bit. It's keeping it that's the hard Absolutely. bit. Absolutely. <laughs> every license, Sarah, every license. Getting it is easy. Maintaining it is really, really hard. Um, right. Um, I'm going to move us along as we're getting to the end of the show. We're now going to round up some of the other stories from the week that we didn't have time to cover. There is so much happening this week. As always, we can't cover it all, but these stories deserve a shout out. Um, Jason, do you want to go first? Sure. Well, I guess um, building on the earlier conversations about using open banking data to to look at credit scoring, India's ICICI uh, bank is using satellite imaging to assess the creditworthiness of farmers applying for loans and the data uh, that they use to measure various parameters related to the land, irrigation and crop patterns. 
in combination with demographic and financial markers to make lending decisions. The bank has partnered with agri-fintech companies specializing in harnessing space technology and weather information for commercial usage. Additionally, ICICI, I've got getting the hang of it now, has worked on further scoring models to create indices at a district level, village level, as well as for individual land to provide an estimate of the past and future agricultural income. Super interesting. Yeah, I think it's absolutely fascinating as well. It's a, it's a really interesting one to keep an eye on, especially that model. Um, again, calling back or harking back to some some stories you've already mentioned in the show. Um, this one is about the PRA challenging business models of new banks in a consultation paper. Um, so the Prudential Regulation Authority, which is another UK regulator, set out its proposed approach to the supervision of both new and growing non-systematic UK banks. The paper noted that out of the 22 UK banks authorised since 2013, a number of new entrants underestimated what is required in order to become a successful established bank. The PRA avoided buzzwords such as challenger banks or neobanks and chose to use the term new banks in order to describe the firms currently in the mobilization stage, which means authorization with restrictions. Goodness me. And those firms that have received authorization without restrictions within the past 12 months. The paper proposes a new supervisory statement and is intended to sit alongside the PRA's requirements and expectations. Um, so I don't think this is unexpected. I think that they sort of had their ducks in a row for what we do to get new banks into the market. Now we've got new banks into the market. We have to keep an eye on what they're doing. I do think a lot of the British media... Um, took it and ran with it and put certain banks, associated certain neobanks names with it, which was perhaps a little bit unfair. I think the PRA just wants to sort of make sure it's ready for the next stage of bank growth. That's my perspective. Okay, next story. Atom Bank bids to raise fresh funds through share sale. So Atom Bank is planning a £150 million share sale to see it through the pandemic with an eye on pursuing an IPO in 2022. Since its launch in 2016, Atom has taken £1.8 billion in customer deposits and lent £2.4 billion. The magic of banking, eh? The company is facing downward pressure on margins as competition heats up in the mortgage business. So the COVID-19 outbreak is also highlighting the fragility of the new breed of digital-only lenders as potential investors downgrade expectations and valuations in a challenging business environment. Cool. So our and finally story is that Japan is running out of credit card numbers. So um, apparently the problem here is that there's been a huge uptake in online shopping amid the pandemic. um, And the country's credit card companies are struggling to come up with original 16 digit numbers as consumers increasingly shop online. The rise in credit card use has also been linked to a government campaign to encourage cashless payments. Uh, The Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, I think I probably got that wrong, but Apologies, uh, wants to double the ratio of cashless payments to 40% by 2025 and eventually to 80%. Credit card companies have warned that the boost in card issuances will result in a shortage of combinations from the seventh digit onwards. So, just to explain this, on a credit card, the first six digits denote the country, brand, and other information, and the remaining 10, including the account number and type of account, are decided by the credit card issuer. So apparently, the most obvious solution to this, I don't know who it's obvious to, but not to me, um, is to add an extra digit to credit card numbers. But the reform, which would involve advanced trials to prevent forgery, could leave the industry with a bill running into billions of yen that it is reluctant to pass on to consumers. Well, it's sort of amusing, 
because I don't think I've ever heard of anything like this before, but I don't know, has anybody else come across this before? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, actually, one of the big problems is in IP addresses, bizarrely, um, because actually, when you think about the the way that uh, computers and servers around the world are addressed, which is, you know, with a group of digits, um, we're getting more uh, more things connected online than there are digits. So a fair few years ago, we went from this IP version four and and the internet sort of uh, uh, the people who specify how addressing works brought out IP version six, which adds more digits. Um, what interests me here is that that I don't think it is the obvious thing to add another digit because that's crazy difficult. Do you think of all of the machines and all of the infrastructure and all of the things that actually pass these numbers around? Um, if you've got, what, 60, uh, how many digits? 60, 10 digits to play with? That's, that's 10 billion different uh, cards out there. So really what we really need is, is reuse. Um, you actually need to, to track all of the numbers that you've given out and then just give out, you know, the same number again, but with a different CVV code because the, this this credit card was last used seven years ago. And so we need to do, the, you know, the next thing. And with virtual cards coming through, there's definitely some intermediate sort of step of being able to do that kind of thing. But the fact that you've in the entire life cycle issued uh, you, you're at some point you'll have issued 10 billion cards or numbers doesn't mean that there are that number that are in circulation today so I don't know I think adding a 17th digit seems um, like a, a little on the extreme side that's what rather confused me I thought if Japan's running out of card numbers what on earth is the US doing <laughs> like I don't makes me think of Apple Card um, the card itself has doesn't have a number on it because um, it's meant to be used they want you to use it in Apple Pay, um, where there's obviously they generate a virtual card number. But um, yeah, I don't know if there's something to that, but there's no card number on the actual Apple card. It's just the chip and that's it. Yeah, it's, it's a, it is a strange one. Um, I, I don't know, Shafali, do you have any, any thoughts on this? I mean, I think you probably agree it's a bit of a strange one, but other than that. And very complex. Very, my brain cannot compute all of these numbers and, and why it has. Although it, I think the whole idea, you know, the credit card thing, is just so bizarre. And, and I think when you think about uh, Visa, MasterCard and Amex, um, when I used to work at Stripe, there used to be this really cool thing where if you typed in the first four numbers of the credit card, it automatically popped up in a Stripe console, uh, whether it was a Visa or Amex or, or MasterCard issued card. And it was a very cute, quirky thing. I always loved remembering uh, helping the, well, not helping the engineers, but seeing the engineers build that feature out. But I don't know, I think credit cards, I, do, I try and not use mine as much as I can because I'm always so afraid of debt. <laughs> yeah, there is that. I think there are certain others who were raised by parents who were like, you must avoid debt at any and all circumstances. And we've, we've got a lifelong fear of it. Um, yeah, well, that's an interesting one. I, I'm kind of with you, Jason, on the extra digit. It doesn't sound like it's a good idea. And that's because I am old enough to remember when in the UK they added an extra digit to landline phone numbers and the uh, the chaos that caused. So if you can't handle phone numbers, how, how you can possibly handle credit cards? Um, okay, on that note, that wraps up the show. Thank you so much to all of our guests. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Shafali? Uh, for me, it's on Twitter at Shafali Roy. And for Trulea, it's uh, our website. And we're also at Trulea on, on Twitter. Perfect. Rachel, how about you? Um, on Twitter, I'm rhgreen1109. Um, 
you could look me up on LinkedIn, just Rachel Green. It's kind of a common name. And you could search my name on businessinsider.com. Perfect. And Jason? Well, if you're building new banks and propositions around the world, uh, that's what 11FS does. So you can find me at 11FS.com or on Twitter at Jason Bates. Perfect. And as for me, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. And thank you so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, do subscribe to the podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps to make it better and it helps others to find the show. Speaking of making it better, we'd love for you to give us your thoughts via our super quick survey. Just visit bit.ly forward slash fintech insider survey. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS, Fintech Insider, or email podcast at 11FS.com. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.